0: Chapter Twenty Five of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Boston Blackie's Mary. For Mary, the days were the longest and saddest she had known. Her father, Dayton Tom, had done his bet, but this was different. She was a prison widow now. Who never missed a visiting day at the san gregorio penitentiary twice each month she crossed the bay from san francisco to the prison twice each month with others like herself beside her she rode from the station to the prison gates in the rickety old stage and waited in the reception-room a quiver with impatience and longing for the first glimpse of the man she loved when he came when he caught her in his arms and kissed her looking into her face with eyes that answered the love in hers Then for a pitifully short half-hour both forgot prisons and the law and separations, and were happy. Boston Blackie and his Mary reckoned time from visiting day to visiting day. Those half-hours together, separated though they were by thirteen long blank days, made life endurable. Neither ever spoke of the long years that must elapse before Blackie would walk out through the gates and go home a free man with Mary. Blackie reckoned them at night in his cell, and Mary checked off each day on a calendar in her rooms. But when they were together, they let no evil thoughts mar their happiness. Ever since the strike, Blackie had been apprehensive and watchful. Deputy Warden Sherwood had made no attempt to punish any of the men concerned in the revolt. He was not a man to break his word. But when any of the men involved in it transgressed a prison rule, even in a trifling matter, The punishment that followed proved that Sherwood neither forgave nor forgot. On a bright Saturday afternoon Blackie was impatiently pacing the yard, awaiting the summons to the reception-room and Mary. It came at last, and he hurried through the gates, pass in hand. She was waiting for him, and sprang to his side, hands outstretched and trembling with eagerness, in her fear of losing even one second of their thirty precious minutes their kiss was interrupted by the gruff voice of ellis the reception-room guard wait a minute there Blackie," he commanded who is this woman who is she repeated the convict in black amazement why she's mary my wife you surely know her well enough she's been here every visiting day i know she's managed to slip in here on visiting days ellis said but what i ask you is who and what is she "'We're told she's an ex-con herself. If so, she can't visit you. The rules don't permit it.' The man turned to Mary. "'Isn't this your picture?' he asked sneeringly, as he handed her a photograph of a woman with a prison number pinned across the breast. It was Mary's picture. Years before, Mary Dawson, daughter of Dayton Tom, a professional crook, had been sent to the penitentiary because she declined to clear herself at the expense of one of her father's pals and her past now had suddenly risen up to deprive her of the single treasure that life held her half-hour visits with blackie it's my photograph she said in a voice choked with anguish for she knew prisons too well not to realize what the admission meant but mr ellis please please don't bar me because of that i did time yes but I wasn't guilty. For God's sake, don't take our visits away from us. They're—they're they're all we have." The girl's voice was broken by her sobs. "'Of course you weren't guilty. That's what they all say,' the guard answered. you better beat it, woman, while you've got a chance. You're lucky the deputy don't put the city dicks on to you. There's a bunch of them over here today too.' Boston Blackie, white as a marble image, glared into the guard's face with eyes that narrowed dangerously. The man's reference to the deputy made everything clear. This was Sherwood's revenge. Did the deputy tell you to bar Mary from visiting me? he demanded of the guard. What's that to you? The man answered with pointed insolence. I don't want her here, and she's barred, that's all. She's got nerve to come here anyway among decent women the, the word never left his lips. Boston Blackie's blow caught him on the chin, and Ellis sprawled across the room and toppled to the floor. In a second, Blackie was on him again, grasping his throat in a frenzy of savagery. The whole reception room was in an uproar. Women screamed. Convicts shouted encouragement. Blackie's vice-like grip was strangling the all but unconscious guard. Mary's voice, pleading with him frantically, restored the convict to sanity. "'Don't kill him! Don't kill him!' she begged. For your sake and mine, let him go, dear. Think what it means to us both. Slowly Blackie's grip loosened. He dropped the man and took Mary in his arms. Goodbye, dear one,' he said. "'I've tried to get by here without trouble, but Sherwood won't let me. From now on I've just one purpose. I'm going to beat this place. I'm going to escape. Watch and wait for me. It may be a month, it may be a year, but some day—' I'll come." Guards summoned by the uproar rushed in, and one struck Blackie over the head with a club, laying him bleeding and senseless. Blackie, still unconscious, was carried inside the gates into the deputy's office, where Sherwood was informed that Boston Blackie had committed the most heinous of prison crimes he had struck an officer. "'Take him to Punishment Hall, and leave him there for tonight. Don't give him punishment of any kind. I'll attend to that in the morning," the deputy ordered. As the guards carried Boston Blackie across the yard toward the punishment chamber, Martin Sherwood took a match from his desk and lighted the cigar he had been chewing. Boston Blackie lay on the floor in Punishment Hall, trussed up in the straitjacket as tightly as two able-bodied guards could draw the ropes. Great beads of perspiration stood on his forehead. A thin trickle of blood showed on his chin, beneath which his clenched teeth bit into the flesh. The man's eyes betrayed the torture he was suffering, but no sound came from his lips. Martin Sherwood stood above him, looking down at the helpless form in the canvas sack. He was smoking. A prison straitjacket on a wall is nothing alarming to the eye, but in operation it is an instrument of most fiendish torture. The victim stands upright, arms straight down before him, and hands on the front of each leg. The jacket itself is a heavy canvas contrivance that extends from the neck to the knees, with eyelets in the back in which ropes make it possible to cinch it to any degree desired, as a woman's corset can be tightened. When the jacket is adjusted over the arms and body, the man is laid face downward on the floor, and guards tighten the jacket by placing a foot on the small of the convict's back, and drawing in the ropes with their full strength. Fully tightened, the jacket shuts off blood circulation throughout the body almost completely. For the first five minutes, oppressed breathing is the only inconvenience felt. Then the stagnating blood commences to cause the most excruciating torture—a thousand pains, as if white-hot needles are being passed through the flesh, run through the body. The feet and limbs swell and turn black. Irresistible weights seem to be crushing the brain four hours in the jacket made one convict a paralytic for life some men have endured it for half or three-quarters of an hour without crying out but only a few boston blackie had been in the jacket for an hour and five minutes and as yet martin sherwood had waited in vain for groans and pleas for release the prison physician stood near by looking on anxiously one man had died after the jacket had been used on him in san gregorio and the newspapers made quite a fuss about it. The doctor didn't want a repetition of that trouble, and yet he knew the man on the floor had been under punishment fully twenty minutes too long. Still the deputy gave no indication of an intention to release him. Five minutes passed. Blackie's face was a ghastly purple. Blood oozed from his nostrils. He rolled aimlessly to and fro on the floor, but his lips still were clenched, and no sound came from them. The doctor grew more and more nervous, At last he called the deputy warden aside. "'He's had enough, more than enough, deputy,' he urged. "'Hadn't we better call it off?' "'Never, till he begs,' said Sherwood, biting off his cigar in the middle and tossing it away. Perspiration stood on his brow, too. Five more minutes passed, and the form on the floor, too horrible now to be described, ceased to roll and toss. The doctor stooped over him quickly. "'He's out!' he announced you've got to quit now sherwood a few more minutes are likely to kill him and anyway he's unconscious and you're not doing any good release him said the deputy warden curtly take him over to the hospital and bring him round we'll try it again tomorrow." hours later boston blackie slowly and painfully came back into what seemed a blurred and hideous world he didn't break me he said over and over to himself i've beaten him again I'll do it just once more, too. Nobody has ever escaped from this place since Martin Sherwood has been deputy, but I will. The relieved doctor gave Blackie a drink that sent him off into an uneasy slumber, in which he was climbing an interminable ladder to a garden from which Mary stretched down her arms to him. But when he seized her hands, the fingers shriveled into cigars, and her face changed to Martin Sherwood's whose white teeth bit into his flesh until he clenched his lips to keep from crying out. "'When Blackie gets out of the hospital, put him in charge of the lawn in front of my offices,' said Sherwood to the assignment captain the following morning. "'I have decided not to give him any more of the jacket.' The captain wonderingly obeyed. It was the first time he had ever known the deputy to deviate from his inflexible rule that a convict once sent to the jacket Stayed until he begged for mercy. End of chapter twenty five.